Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Chapter 54 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 54 It was one of those March days, when the sun shines hot and the wind blows cold, when it is summer in the light and winter in the shade. We had our peacoats with us, and I took a bag. Of all my worldly possessions, I took no more than the few necessaries that filled the bag. Where I might go, what I might do, or when I might return, were questions utterly unknown to me. Nor did I vex my mind with them, for it was wholly set on Provis's safety. I only wondered for the passing moment, as I stopped at the door and looked back, under what altered circumstances I should next see those rooms, if ever. We loitered down to the temple stairs, and stood loitering there, as if we were not quite decided to go upon the water at all. Of course I had taken care that the boat should be ready, and everything in order. After a little show of indecision, which there were none to see, but the two or three amphibious creatures belonging to our temple stairs, we went on board, and cast off. Herbert in the bow, I steering. It was then about high water, half-past eight. Our plan was this. The tide, beginning to run down at nine, and being with us until three, we intended still to creep on after it had turned, and row against it until dark. We should then be well in those long reaches below Gravesend, between Kent and Essex, where the river is broad and solitary, where the waterside inhabitants are very few, and where lone public houses are scattered here and there of which we could choose one for a resting-place. There we meant to lie by all night. The steamer for Hamburg, and the steamer for Rotterdam, would start from London at about nine on Thursday morning. We should know at what time to expect them, according to where we were, and would hail the first, so that if by any accident we were not taken aboard, we should have another chance. We knew the distinguishing marks of each vessel. The relief of being at last engaged in the execution of the purpose was so great to me, that I felt it difficult to realise the condition in which I had been a few hours before. The crisp air, the sunlight, the movement on the river, and the moving river itself, the road that ran with us, seeming to sympathise with us, animate us, and encourage us on, freshened me with new hope. I felt mortified to be of so little use in the boat, but there were few better oarsmen than my two friends, and they rowed with a steady stroke that was to last all day. At that time the steam-traffic on the Thames was far below its present extent, and watermen's boats were far more numerous. Of barges, sailing colliers, and coasting traders there were perhaps as many as now, but of steamships, great and small, not a tithe or a twentieth part so many. Early as it was, there were plenty of scholars going here and there that morning, 
and plenty of barges dropping down with the tide. The navigation of the river between bridges in an open boat was a much easier and commoner matter in those days than it is in these, and we went ahead among many skiffs and wherries, briskly. Old London Bridge was soon passed, and old Billingsgate Market with its oyster-boats and Dutchmen, and the White Tower and Traitor's Gate, and we were in among the tiers of shipping. Here were the Leith, Aberdeen, and Glasgow steamers, loading and unloading goods, and looking immensely high out of the water as we passed alongside. Here were colliers by the score and score, with the coal-whippers plunging off stages on deck as counterweights to measures of coal swinging up, which were then rattled over the side into barges. Here, at her moorings, was to-morrow's steamer for Rotterdam, of which we took good notice, and here to-morrow's for Hamburg, under whose bowsprit we crossed. And now, I, sitting in the stern, could see with a faster beating heart Mill Pond Bank and Mill Pond Stairs. "'Is he there?' said Herbert. "'Not yet.' "'Right. He was not to come down till he saw us. Can you see a signal?' Not well from here, but I think I see it. Now I see him. Pull both. Easy, Herbert. Oars. We touched the stairs lightly for a single moment, and he was on board, and we were off again. He had a boat cloak with him, and a black canvas bag, and he looked as like a river pilot as my heart could have wished. Dear boy, he said, putting his arm on my shoulder as he took his seat. Faithful dear boy, well done. Thank ye, thank ye. Again among the tiers of shipping, in and out, avoiding rusty chain cables, frayed hempen houses, and bobbing boys, sinking for the moment, floating broken baskets, scattering floating chips of wood and shaving, cleaving floating scum of coal, in and out, under the figurehead of the John of Sunderland, making a speech to the winds as is done by many Johns, and the Betsy of Yarmouth, with a firm formality of bosom, and her knobby eyes starting two inches out of her head, in and out, hammers going in shipbuilders' yards, saws going at timber, clashing engines going at things unknown, pumps going in leaky ships, capstans going, ships going out to sea, and unintelligible sea-creatures roaring curses over the bulwarks at respondent lightermen, in and out out at last upon the clearer river, where the ship's boys might take their fenders in, no longer fishing in troubled waters with them over the side, and where the festooned sails might fly out to the wind. At the stairs, where we had taken him aboard, and ever since, I had looked warily for any token of our being suspected. I had seen none. We certainly had not been, and at that time as certainly we were not, either attended or followed by any boat. If we had been waited on by any boat, I should have run in to shore, and have obliged her to go on, or to make her purpose evident. But we held our own, without any appearance of molestation. He had his boat-cloak on him, and looked, as I have said, a natural part of the scene. It was remarkable, but perhaps the wretched life he had led accounted for it, that he was the least anxious of any of us. He was not indifferent, for he told me that he hoped to live to see his gentleman one of the best of gentlemen in a foreign country. He was not disposed to be passive or resigned, as I understood it, but
but he had no notion of meeting danger halfway. When it came upon him, he confronted it, but it must come before he troubled himself. "'If you knowed, dear boy,' he said to me, "'what it is to sit here, along her, my dear boy, and have my smoke, arter having been day by day betwixt four walls, you'd envy me, but you don't know what it is.' "'I think I know the delights of freedom,' I answered. "'Ah!' said he, shaking his head gravely. "'But you don't know it equal to me. "'You must have been under lock and key, dear boy, to know it equal to me. "'But I ain't a-going to be low.' It occurred to me as inconsistent, that for any mastering idea he should have endangered his freedom and even his life. But I reflected that perhaps freedom without danger was too much apart from all the habit of his existence to be to him what it would be to another man. I was not far out, since he said, after smoking a little, "'You see, dear boy, when I was over yonder, t'other side the world, I was always a-looking to this side, and it come flat to be there, for all I was a-growing rich. Everybody knowed Magwitch, and Magwitch could come, and Magwitch could go, and nobody's head would be troubled about him. They ain't so easy concerning me here, dear boy. Wouldn't be, leastwise, if they knowed where I was. If all goes well, said I, you'll be perfectly free and safe again within a few hours. Well, he returned, drawing a long breath, I hope so. And think so. He dipped his hand in the water, over the boat's gunwale, and said, smiling with that softened air upon him, which was not new to me, Aye, I suppose I think so, dear boy. We'd be puzzled to be more quiet and easy-going than we are at present. But it's a-flowing so soft and pleasant through the water, perhaps as makes me think it. I was a-thinking through my smoke just then, that we can no more see the bottom of the next few hours, than we can see to the bottom of this river what I catch as hold of. Nor yet we can't no more hold their tide than I can hold this, and it's run through my fingers and gone, you see, holding up his dripping hand. But your face, I should think you were a little despondent said I. Not a bit on it, dear boy. It comes a-flowing on so quiet, and of that there rippling at the boat's head, making a sort of a Sunday tune. Maybe I'm growing a trifle old, besides." He put his pipe back in his mouth, with an undisturbed expression of face, and sat as composed and contented as if we were already out of England. Yet he was as submissive to a word of advice as if he had been in constant terror. For, when we ran ashore to get some bottles of beer into the boat, and he was stepping out, I hinted that I thought he would be safest where he was. And he said, "'Do you, dear boy?' and quietly sat down again. The air felt cold upon the river, but it was a bright day, and the sunshine was very cheering. The tide ran strong. I took care to lose none of it and our steady stroke carried us on thoroughly well. By imperceptible degrees, as the tide ran out, 
we lost more and more of the nearer woods and hills, and dropped lower and lower between the muddy banks, but the tide was yet with us when we were off Gravesend. As our charge was wrapped in his cloak, I purposely passed within a boat or two's length of the floating custom-house, and so out to catch the stream, alongside of two emigrant ships, and under the bows of a large transport with troops on the forecastle looking down at us. And soon the tide began to slacken, and the craft lying at anchor to swing, and presently they had all swung round, and the ships that were taking advantage of the new tide to get up to the pool began to crowd upon us in a fleet, and we kept under the shore, as much out of the strength of the tide now as we could, standing carefully off from low shallows and mud-banks. Our oarsmen were so fresh, by dint of having occasionally let her drive with the tide for a minute or two, that a quarter of an hour's rest proved full as much as they wanted. We got ashore among some slippery stones while we ate and drank what we had with us, and looked about. It was like my own marsh country, flat and monotonous, and with a dim horizon, while the winding river turned and turned, and the great floating buoys upon it turned and turned, and everything else seemed stranded and still. For now, the last of the fleet of ships was round the last low point we had headed, and the last green barge, straw-laden, with a brown sail, had followed, and some ballast lighters, shaped like a child's first rude imitation of a boat, lay low in the mud, and a little squat shoal lighthouse on open piles stood crippled in the mud on stilts and crutches, and slimy stakes stuck out of the mud, and slimy stones stuck out of the mud, and red landmarks and tide-marks stuck out of the mud, and an old landing-stage and an old roofless building slipped into the mud, and all about us was stagnation and mud. We pushed off again, and made what way we could. It was much harder work now, but Herbert and Startup persevered, and rowed, and rowed, and rowed, until the sun went down. By that time the river had lifted us a little, so that we could see above the bank. There was the red sun, on the low level of the shore, in a purple haze, fast deepening into black, and there was the solitary flat marsh, and far away there were the rising grounds, between which and us there seemed to be no life, save here and there in the foreground a melancholy gull. As the night was fast falling, and as the moon, being past the full, would not rise early, we held a little council, a short one, for clearly our course was to lie by at the first lonely tavern we could find. So they plied their oars once more, and I looked out for anything like a house. Thus we held on, speaking little, for four or five dull miles. It was very cold, and a collier coming by us, with her galley-fire smoking and flaring, looked like a comfortable home. The night was as dark by this time as it would be until morning, and what light we had seemed to come more from the river than the sky, as the oars in their dipping struck at a few reflected stars. At this dismal time we were evidently all possessed by the idea that we were followed. As the tide made, it flapped heavily at irregular intervals against the shore, and whenever such a sound came, one or other of us was sure to start and look in that direction. Here and there, the set of the current had worn down the bank into a little creek, and we were all suspicious of such places, and eyed them nervously. 
sometimes. "'What was that, Ripple?' one of us would say, in a low voice, or another, "'Is that a boat yonder?' And afterwards we would fall into a dead silence, and I would sit impatiently thinking with what an unusual amount of noise the oars worked in the thowels. At length we descried a light and a roof, and presently afterwards ran alongside a little causeway made of stones that had been picked up hard by. Leaving the rest in the boat, I stepped ashore, and found the light to be in a window of a public-house. It was a dirty place enough, and I dare say not unknown to smuggling adventurers, but there was a good fire in the kitchen, and there were eggs and bacon to eat, and various liquors to drink. Also, there were two double-bedded rooms. "'Such as they were,' the landlord said. No other company was in the house, and the landlord, his wife, and a grizzled male creature, the Jack of the little causeway, who was as slimy and smeary as if he had been low-water mark too. With this assistant I went down to the boat again, and we all came ashore, and brought out the oars and rudder and boat-hook and all else, and hauled her up for the night. We made a very good meal by the kitchen fire, and then apportioned the bedrooms. Herbert and Startop were to accompany one, I and our charge the other. We found the air as carefully excluded from both, as if air were fatal to life, and there were more dirty clothes and bandboxes under the beds than I should have thought the family possessed. But we considered ourselves well off, notwithstanding, for a more solitary place we could not have found. While we were comforting ourselves by the fire after our meal, the Jack, who was sitting in a corner, and who had a bloated pair of shoes on, which he had exhibited while we were eating our eggs and bacon, as interesting relics that he had taken a few days ago from the feet of a drowned seaman washed ashore, asked me if we had seen a four-oared galley going up with the tide. When I told him no, he said she must have gone down then, and yet she took up too, when she left there. "'They must have thought better, Aunt, for some reason or another,' said the Jack, "'and gone down.' "'A four-oared galley, did you say?' said I. "'A four,' said the Jack, "'and two sitters. "'Did they come ashore here?' "'They put in with a stone two-gallon jar for some beer.' "'I'd have been glad to poison the beer myself,' said the Jack, "'or put some rattling fig in it.' "'Why?' "'I know why,' said the Jack. He spoke in a slushy voice, as if much mud had washed into his throat. "'He thinks,' said the landlord, a weakly meditative man with a pale eye, who seemed to rely greatly on his Jack. He thinks they was what they wasn't. I knows what I thinks, observed the Jack. You thinks custom house, Jack, said the landlord. I do, said the Jack. Then you're wrong, Jack. Am I? In the infinite meaning of his reply, and his boundless confidence in his views, the Jack took one of his bloated shoes off, looked into it, knocked a few stones out of it on the kitchen floor, and put it on again. He did this with the air of a Jack who was so right that he could afford to do anything. 
Why, what do you make out that they done with their buttons, then, Jack? asked the landlord, vacillating weakly. Done with their buttons? returned the Jack. Chucked him overboard, swallowed him, sold him to come up small salad, done with their buttons. Don't be cheeky, Jack remonstrated the landlord, in a melancholy and pathetic way. "'A custom-house officer knows what to do with his buttons,' said the Jack, repeating the obnoxious word with the greatest contempt. "'When they comes betwixt him and his own light, a four and two sitters don't go hanging and overing, up with one tide and down with another, and both with and against another, without there being custom-house at the bottom of it." Saying which, he went out in disdain, and the landlord, having no one to reply upon, found it impracticable to pursue the subject. This dialogue made us all uneasy, and me very uneasy. A dismal wind was muttering round the house, the tide was flapping at the shore, and I had a feeling that we were caged and threatened. A four-oared galley, hovering about in so unusual a way as to attract this notice, was an ugly circumstance that I could not get rid of. When I had induced Provis to go up to bed, I went outside with my two companions. Sartop, by this time, knew the state of the case, and held another council. Whether we should remain at the house until near the steamer's time, which would be about one in the afternoon, or whether we should put off early in the morning, was the question we discussed. On the whole we deemed it the better course to lie where we were, until within an hour or so of the steamer's time, and then get out in her track and drift easily with the tide. Having settled to do this, we returned into the house and went to bed. I lay down with the greater part of my clothes on and slept well for a few hours. When I awoke, the wind had risen, and the sign of the house, the ship, was creaking and banging about, with noises that startled me. Rising softly, for my charge lay fast asleep, I looked out of the window. It commanded the causeway, where we had hauled up our boat, and, as my eyes adapted themselves to the light of the clouded moon, I saw two men looking into her. They passed by under the window, looking at nothing else, and they did not go down to the landing-place, which I could discern to be empty, but struck across the marsh in the direction of the Nore. My first impulse was to call up Herbert and show him the two men going away, but, reflecting before I got into his room, which was at the back of the house and adjoined mine, that he and Startup had had a harder day than I, and were fatigued, I forbore. Going back to my window, I could see the two men moving over the marsh. In that light, however, I soon lost them, and feeling very cold, lay down to think of the matter, and fell asleep again. We were up early. As we walked to and fro, all four together, before breakfast, I deemed it right to recount what I had seen. Again our charge was the least anxious of the party. It was very likely that the men belonged to the custom-house he said quietly, and that they had no thought of us. 
I tried to persuade myself that it was so, as indeed it might easily be. However, I proposed that he and I should walk away together to a distant point we could see, and that the boat should take us aboard there, or as near there as might prove feasible, at about noon. This being considered a good precaution, soon after breakfast he and I set forth, without saying anything of the tavern. He smoked his pipe as we went along, and sometimes stopped to clap me on the shoulder. One would have supposed that it was I who was in danger, not he, and that he was reassuring me. We spoke very little. As we approached the point, I begged him to remain in a sheltered place, while I went on to reconnoitre, for it was towards it that the men had passed in the night. He complied, and I went on alone. There was no boat off the point, nor any boat drawn up anywhere near it, nor were there any signs of the men having embarked there. But, to be sure, the tide was high, and there might have been some footprints under water. When he looked out from his shelter in the distance, and saw that I waved my hat to him to come up, he rejoined me, and there we waited, sometimes lying on the bank, wrapped in our coats, and sometimes moving about to warm ourselves, until we saw our boat coming round. We got aboard easily, and rowed out into the track of the steamer. By that time it wanted but ten minutes of one o'clock, and we began to look out for her smoke. But it was half-past one before we saw her smoke, and soon afterwards we saw behind it the smoke of another steamer. As they were coming on at full speed, we got the two bags ready, and took that opportunity of saying good-bye to Herbert and start up. We had all shaken hands cordially, and neither Herbert's eyes nor mine were quite dry, when I saw a four-oared galley shoot out from under the bank, but a little way ahead of us, and row out into the same track. A stretch of shore had been as yet between us, and the steamer's smoke, by reason of the bend and wind of the river, but now she was visible, coming head on. I called to Herbert and Startup to keep before the tide, that she might see us lying by for her, and I adjured Provis to sit quite still, wrapped in his cloak. He answered cheerily, "'Trust to me, dear boy,' and sat like a statue. Meantime the galley, which was very skilfully handled, had crossed us, let us come up with her, and fallen alongside. Leaving just room enough for the play of the oars, she kept alongside, drifting when we drifted, and pulling a stroke or two when we pulled. Of the two sitters, one held the rudder lines, and looked at us attentively, as did all the rowers. The other sitter was wrapped up, much as Provis was, and seemed to shrink, and whisper some instruction to the steerer as he looked at us. Not a word was spoken in either boat. Startup could make out, after a few minutes, which steamer was first, and gave me the word, Hamburg, in a low voice, as we sat face to face. She was nearing us very fast, and the beating of her pedals grew louder and louder. I felt as if her shadow were absolutely upon us, when the galley hailed us. I answered, "'You have a return transport there,' said the man who held the lines. "'That's the man, wrapped in the cloak.' His name is Abel Magwitch, otherwise Provis. I apprehend that man, and call upon him to surrender, and you to assist." At the same moment, without giving any audible direction to his crew, he ran the galley abroad of us. They had pulled one sudden stroke ahead, had got their oars in, had run athwart us, 
and were holding on to our gunwale before we knew what they were doing. This caused great confusion on board the steamer, and I heard them calling to us, and heard the order given to stop the paddles, and heard them stop, but felt her driving down upon us irresistibly. In the same moment I saw the steersman of the galley lay his hand on his prisoner's shoulder, and saw that both boats were swinging round with the force of the tide, and saw that all hands on board the steamer were running forward quite frantically. Still in the same moment I saw the prisoner start up, lean across his captor, and pull the cloak from the neck of the shrinking sitter in the galley. Still in the same moment I saw that the face disclosed was the face of the other convict of long ago. Still in the same moment I saw the face tilt backward, with white terror on it, that I shall never forget, and hear a great cry on board the steamer, and a loud splash in the water, and felt the boat sink from under me. It was but for an instant that I seemed to struggle with a thousand mill-weirs, and a thousand flashes of light. That instant passed, I was taken on board the galley. Herbert was there, and Startop was there, but our boat was gone, and the two convicts were gone. What with the cries aboard the steamer, and the furious blowing off of her steam, and her driving on, and our driving on, I could not at first distinguish sky from water, or shore from shore. But the crew of the galley righted her with great speed, and, pulling certain swift strong strokes ahead, lay upon their oars, every man looking silently and eagerly at the water astern. Presently a dark object was seen in it, bearing towards us on the tide. No man spoke but the steersman held up his hand, and all softly backed water, and kept the boat straight and true before it. As it came nearer, I saw it to be Magwitch, swimming, but not swimming freely. He was taken on board, and instantly manacled at the wrists and ankles. The galley was kept steady, and the silent eager lookout at the water was resumed. But the Rotterdam steamer now came up, and apparently not understanding what had happened, came on at speed. By the time she had been hailed and stopped, both steamers were drifting away from us, and we were rising and falling in a troubled wake of water. The lookout was kept, long after all was still again, and the two steamers were gone. But everybody knew that it was hopeless now. At length we gave it up, and pulled under the shore towards the tavern we had lately left, where we were received with no little surprise. Here I was able to get some comforts for Magwitch, Provis no longer, who had received some very severe injury in the chest, and a deep cut in the head. He told me that he believed himself to have gone under the keel of the steamer, and to have been struck on the head in rising. The injury to his chest, which rendered his breathing extremely painful, he thought he had received against the side of the galley. He added that he did not pretend to say what he might or might not have done to Compayson, but— that in the moment of his laying his hand on his cloak to identify him, that villain had staggered up and staggered back, and they had both gone overboard together, when the sudden wrenching of him, Magwitch, out of our boat, and the endeavour of his captor to keep him in it, had capsized us. He told me in a whisper that they had gone down, fiercely locked in each other's arms, and that there had been a struggle under water, and that he had disengaged himself, struck out, and swum away. I never had any reason to doubt the exact truth of what he thus told me. The officer who steered the galley gave the same account of their going overboard. When I asked this officer's permission to change the prisoner's wet clothes, 
by purchasing any spare garments I could get at the public-house. He gave it readily, merely observing that he must take charge of everything his prisoner had about him. So the pocket-book, which had once been in my hands, passed into the officers. He further gave me leave to accompany the prisoner to London, but declined to accord that grace to my two friends. The jack at the ship was instructed where the drowned man had gone down, and undertook to search for the body in the places where it was likeliest to come ashore. His interest in its recovery seemed to me to be much heightened when he heard that it had stockings on. Probably it took about a dozen drowned men to fit him out completely, and that may have been the reason why the different articles of his dress were in various stages of decay. We remained at the public-house until the tide turned, and then Magwitch was carried down to the galley and put on board. Herbert and Startup were to get to London by land as soon as they could. We had a doleful parting, and when I took my place by Magwitch's side, I felt that that was my place henceforth, while he lived. For now my repugnance to him had all melted away, and in the hunted, wounded, shackled creature who held my hand in his, I only saw a man who had meant to be my benefactor, and who had felt affectionately, grateful, and generously towards me, with great constancy, through a series of years. I only saw in him a much better man than I had been to Joe. His breathing became more difficult and painful as the night drew on, and often he could not repress a groan. I tried to rest him on the arm I could use, in any easy position, but it was dreadful to think that I could not be sorry at heart for his being badly hurt, since it was unquestionably best that he should die. That there were, still living, people enough who were able and willing to identify him, I could not doubt. That he would be leniently treated, I could not hope. He who had been presented in the worst light at his trial, who had since broken prison, and had been tried again, who had returned from transportation under a life sentence, and who had occasioned the death of the man who was the cause of his arrest. As we returned towards the setting sun we had yesterday left behind us, and as the stream of our hopes seemed all running back, I told him how grieved I was to think that he had come home for my sake. "'Dear boy,' he answered, "'I'm quite content to take my chance. I've seen my boy, and he can be a gentleman without me.' No. I had thought about that, while we had been there side by side. No. Apart from any inclinations of my own, I understood Wemmick's hint now. I foresaw that, being convicted, his possessions would be forfeited to the Crown. "'Looky here, dear boy,' said he. "'It's best as a gentleman should not be known to belong to me now. Only come to see me as if you come by chance along a Wemmick. Sit where I can see you, when I am swore to, for the last of many times, and I don't ask no more.' "'I will never stir from your side,' said I, "'when I am suffered to be near you. Please, God, I will be as true to you as you have been to me.' I felt his hand tremble as it held mine, and he turned his face away as he lay in the bottom of the boat, and I heard that old sound in his throat, 
softened now, like all the rest of him. It was a good thing that he had touched this point, for it put into my mind what I might not otherwise have thought of until too late, that he need never know how his hopes of enriching me had perished. End of chapter 54《Chapter Fifty Five of Great Expectations》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter Fifty Five. He was taken to the police court next day, and would have been immediately committed for trial, but that it was necessary to send down for an old officer of the prison ship from which he had once escaped to speak to his identity. Nobody doubted it, but Compeyson, who had meant to depose to it, was tumbling on the tides, dead, and it happened that there was not at that time any prison officer in London who could give the required evidence. I had gone direct to Mr. Jaggers at his private house, on my arrival overnight, to retain his assistance, and Mr. Jaggers, on the prisoner's behalf, would admit nothing. It was the sole resource, for he told me that the case must be over in five minutes when the witness was there, and that no power on earth could prevent its going against us. I imparted to Mr. Jaggers my design of keeping him in ignorance of the fate of his wealth. Mr. Jaggers was querulous and angry with me, for having let it slip through my fingers, and said we must memorialise by and by, and try at all events for some of it. But— he did not conceal from me that although there might be many cases in which the forfeiture would not be exacted, there were no circumstances in this case to make it one of them. I understood that very well. I was not related to the outlaw, or connected with him by any recognisable tie. He had put his hand to no writing or settlement in my favour before his apprehension, and to do so now would be idle. I had no claim and I finally resolved, and ever afterwards abided by the resolution, that my heart should never be sickened with the hopeless task of attempting to establish one. There appeared to be reason for supposing that the drowned informer had hoped for a reward out of this forfeiture, and had obtained some accurate knowledge of Magwitch's affairs. When his body was found, many miles from the scene of his death, and so horribly disfigured, that he was only recognisable by the contents of his pockets, notes were still legible, folded in a case he carried. Among these were the name of a banking-house in New South Wales, where a sum of money was, and the designation of certain lands of considerable value. Both these heads of information were in a list that Magwitch, while in prison, gave to Mr. Jaggers, of the possessions he supposed I should inherit. His ignorance, poor fellow! at last served him. He never mistrusted but that my inheritance was quite safe, with Mr. Jaggers's aid. After three days' delay, during which the Crown prosecution stood over the production of the witness from the prison-ship, the witness came, and completed the easy case. He was committed to take his trial at the next sessions, which would come on in a month. It was at this dark time of my life, that Herbert returned home one evening, a good deal cast down, and said, "'My dear Handel, I fear I shall soon have to leave you.' 
his partner having prepared me for that, I was less surprised than he thought. "'We shall lose a fine opportunity, if I put off going to Cairo. And I'm very much afraid I must go, Handel, when you most need me.' "'Herberts, I shall always need you, because I shall always love you. But my need is no greater now than at another time. You will be so lonely.' "'I have not leisure to think of that,' said I. "'You know that I am always with him, to the full extent of the time allowed, and that I should be with him all day long if I could. And when I come away from him, you know that my thoughts are with him.' The dreadful condition to which he was brought was so appalling to both of us that we could not refer to it in plainer words. "'My dear fellow,' said Herbert, let the near prospect of our separation, for it is very near, be my justification for troubling you about yourself. Have you thought of your future? No, for I have been afraid to think of any future. But yours cannot be dismissed. Indeed, my dear, dear Handel, it must not be dismissed. I wish you would enter on it now, as far as a few friendly words go with me. I will, said I. In this branch-house of ours, Handel, we must have a—I saw that his delicacy was avoiding the right word, so I said—a clerk. A clerk. And I hope it is not at all unlikely that he may expand, as a clerk of your acquaintance has expanded, into a partner. Now, Handel, in short, my dear boy, will you come to me? There was something charmingly cordial and engaging in the manner in which, after saying, "'Now, Handel,' as if it were the grave beginning of a portentous business exordium, he had suddenly given up that tone, stretched out his honest hand, and spoke like a schoolboy. "'Clara and I have talked about it again and again,' Herbert pursued, "'and the dear little thing begged me only this evening, with tears in her eyes, to say to you that if you will live with us, when we come together, she will do her best to make you happy, and to convince her husband's friend that he is her friend too. We should get on so well, Handel." I thanked her heartily, and I thanked him heartily, but said I could not yet make sure of joining him, as he so kindly offered. Firstly, my mind was too preoccupied to be able to take in the subject clearly. Secondly, yes, secondly, there was a vague something lingering in my thoughts that will come out very near the end of this slight narrative. But if you thought, Herbert, that you could, without doing any injury to your business, leave the question open for a little while? For any while, cried Herbert, six months, a year? Not so long as that, said I, two or three months at most. Herbert was highly delighted when we shook hands on this arrangement, and said he could now take courage to tell me that he believed he must go away at the end of the week. "'And Clara?' said I. "'The dear little thing,' returned Herbert, "'holds dutifully to her father, as long as he lasts. But he won't last long. Mrs. Wimple confides to me that he is certainly going.' "'Not to say an unfeeling thing,' said I, "'he cannot do better than go. I am afraid that must be admitted,' said Herbert. And then I shall come back for the dear little thing, and the dear little thing and I will walk quietly into the nearest church. Remember, 
"'The blessed darling comes of no family, my dear Handel, "'and never looked into the red book, "'and hasn't a notion about her grandpapa. "'What a fortune for the son of my mother!' "'On the Saturday in that same week, "'I took my leave of Herbert, "'full of bright hope, "'but sad and sorry to leave me, "'as he sat on one of the seaport mail-coaches. "'I went into a coffee-house "'to write a little note to Clara, "'telling her he had gone off, "'sending his love to her over and over again, "'and then went to my lonely home, "'if it deserved the name, "'for it was now no home to me, "'and I had no home anywhere. "'On the stairs I encountered Wemmick, "'who was coming down "'after an unsuccessful application of his knuckles to my door. "'I had not seen him alone "'since the disastrous issue of the attempted flight, "'and he had come in his private and personal capacity "'to say a few words of explanation.' "'in reference to that failure. "'The late compassion,' said Wemmick, "'had by little and little got to the bottom "'of half of the regular business now transacted, "'and it was from the talk of some of his people in trouble, "'some of his people being always in trouble, "'that I heard what I did. "'I kept my ears open, seeming to have them shut, "'until I heard that he was absent, "'and I thought that would be the best time for making the attempt.' I can only suppose now that it was a part of his policy, as a very clever man, habitually to deceive his own instruments. You don't blame me, I hope, Mr. Pip. I'm sure I tried to serve you with all my heart. I am as sure of that, Wemmick, as you can be, and I thank you most earnestly for all your interest and friendship. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a bad job, said Wemmick, scratching his head, and I assure you, I haven't been so cut up for a long time. What I look at is the sacrifice of so much portable property. Oh, dear me! What I think of, Wemmick, is the poor owner of the property. Yes, to be sure, said Wemmick. Of course there can be no objection to your being sorry for him, and I'd put down a five-pound note myself to get him out of it. But what I look at is this— the late compassion, having been beforehand with him in intelligence of his return, and being so determined to bring him to book, I do not think he could have been saved. Whereas the portable property certainly could have been saved. That's the difference between the property and the owner, don't you see? I invited Wemmick to come upstairs, and refresh himself with a glass of grog before walking to Walworth. He accepted the invitation. While he was drinking his moderate allowance, he said, with nothing leading up to it, and after having appeared rather fidgety, "'What do you think of my meaning to take holiday on Monday, Mr. Pip?' "'Why, I suppose you have not done such a thing these twelve months?' "'These twelve years, more likely,' said Wemmick. "'Yes, I'm going to take holiday. More than that, I'm going to take a walk. More than that, I'm going to ask you to take a walk with me. I was about to excuse myself, as being but a bad companion just then, when Wemmick anticipated me. I know your engagements, said he, and I know you're out of sorts, Mr. Pip, but if you could oblige me, I should take it as a kindness. It ain't a long walk, and it's an early one, so it might occupy you, including breakfast on the walk, from eight to twelve. Couldn't you stretch a point and manage it? He had done so much for me at various times, 
that this was very little to do for him. I said I could manage it, would manage it, and he was so very much pleased by my acquiescence that I was pleased too. At his particular request, I appointed to call for him at the castle at half-past eight on Monday morning, and so we parted for the time. Punctual to my appointment, I rang at the castle gate on the Monday morning, and was received by Wemmick himself, who struck me as looking tighter than usual, and having a sleeker hat on. Within, there were two glasses of rum and milk prepared, and two biscuits. The aged must have been stirring with the lark, for, glancing into the perspective of his bedroom, I observed that his bed was empty. When we had fortified ourselves with the rum and milk and biscuits, and were going out for the walk, with that training preparation on us, I was considerably surprised to see Wemmick take up a fishing-rod, and put it over his shoulder. "'Why, we're not going fishing,' said I. "'No,' returned Wemmick, "'but I like to walk with one.' I thought this odd. However, I said nothing, and we set off. We went towards Camberwell Green, and when we were thereabouts, Wemmick said suddenly, "'Hello! Here's a church!' There was nothing very surprising in that, but again I was rather surprised when he said, as if he were animated by a brilliant idea, "'Let's go in!' We went in, Wemmick leaving his fishing-rod in the porch, and looked all round. In the meantime, Wemmick was diving into his coat-pockets, and getting something out of paper there. "'Hello,' said he. "'Here's a couple of pair of gloves. Let's put them on.' As the gloves were white kid gloves, and as the post-office was widened to its utmost extent, I now began to have my strong suspicions. They were strengthened into certainty when I beheld the aged enter at a side-door, escorting a lady. "'Hello!' said Wemmick. "'Here's Miss Skiffins. Let's have a wedding.' That discreet damsel was attired as usual, except that she was now engaged in substituting for her green kid gloves a pair of white. The aged was likewise occupied in preparing a similar sacrifice for the altar of Hymen. The old gentleman, however, experienced so much difficulty in getting his gloves on, that Wemmick found it necessary to put him with his back against a pillar, and then to get behind the pillar himself, and pull away at them, while I, for my part, held the old gentleman round the waist, that he might present an equal and safe resistance. By dint of this ingenious scheme, his gloves were got on to perfection. The clerk and clergyman then appearing, we were ranged in order at those fatal rails. True to his notion of seeming to do it all without preparation, I heard Wemmick say to himself, as he took something out of his waistcoat pocket before the service began, "'Hello! Here's a ring!' I acted in the capacity of backer, or best man, to the bridegroom, while a little limp pew-opener, in a soft bonnet, like a baby's, made a feint of being the bosom friend of Miss Skiffins. The responsibility of giving the lady away devolved upon the aged, which led to the clergyman's being unintentionally scandalised and it happened thus, when he said, "'Who giveth this woman to be married to this man?' The old gentleman, not in the least knowing what point of the ceremony we had arrived at, stood most amiably beaming at the Ten Commandments, upon which the clergyman said again, "'Who giveth this woman to be married to this man?' 
the old gentleman, being still in a state of most estimable unconsciousness, the bridegroom cried out in his accustomed voice, "'Now, aged P, you know who giveth!' To which the aged replied, with great briskness, before saying that he gave, "'All right, John, all right, my boy!' And the clergyman came to so gloomy a pause upon it, that I had doubts for the moment whether we should get completely married that day. It was completely done, however, and when we were going out of church, Wemmick took the cover off the font, and put his white gloves in it, and put the cover on again. Mrs. Wemmick, more heedful of the future, put her white gloves in her pocket, and assumed her green. "'Now, Mr. Pip,' said Wemmick, triumphantly shouldering the fishing-rod as we came out, "'let me ask you whether anybody would suppose this to be a wedding-party.' Breakfast had been ordered at a pleasant little tavern, a mile or so away, upon the rising ground beyond the green, and there was a bagatelle board in the room, in case we should desire to unbend our minds, after the solemnity. It was pleasant to observe that Mrs. Wemmick no longer unwound Wemmick's arm when it adapted itself to her figure, but sat in a high-backed chair against the wall, like a violoncello in its case, and submitted to be embraced, as that melodious instrument might have done. We had an excellent breakfast, and when any one declined anything on the table, Wemmick said, "'Provided by contract, you know. Don't be afraid of it.' I drank to the new couple, drank to the aged, drank to the castle, saluted the bride at parting, and made myself as agreeable as I could. Wemmick came down to the door with me, and I again shook hands with him, and wished him joy. "'Thank ye,' said Wemmick, rubbing his hands. She's such a manager of fowls, you have no idea. You shall have some eggs, and judge for yourself. I say, Mr. Pip, calling me back and speaking low, this is altogether a war with sentiment, please. I understand. Not to be mentioned in Little Britain, said I. Wemmick nodded. After what you let out the other day, Mr. Jaggers may as well not know of it. He might think my brain was softening, or something of the kind. End of chapter 55、chapter、56 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter 56 he lay in prison, very ill, during the whole interval between his committal for trial and the coming round of the sessions. He had broken two ribs, they had wounded one of his lungs, and he breathed with great pain and difficulty, which increased daily. It was a consequence of his hurt that he spoke so low as to be scarcely audible. Therefore he spoke very little. But he was ever ready to listen to me, and it became the first duty of my life to say to him, and read to him, what I knew he ought to hear. Being far too ill to remain in the common prison, he was removed, after the first day or so, into the infirmary. This gave me opportunities of being with him that I could not otherwise have had. And but for his illness he would have been put in irons, for he was regarded as a determined prison-breaker, and I know not what else. Although I saw him every day, it was for only a short time. 
Hence, the regularly recurring spaces of our separation were long enough to record on his face any slight changes that occurred in his physical state. I do not recollect that I once saw any change in it for the better. He wasted, and became slowly weaker and worse, day by day, from the day when the prison door closed upon him. The kind of submission or resignation that he showed was that of a man who was tired out. I sometimes derived an impression, from his manner, or from a whispered word or two which escaped him, that he pondered over the question whether he might have been a better man under better circumstances. But he never justified himself by a hint tending that way, or tried to bend the past out of its eternal shape. It happened, on two or three occasions in my presence, that his desperate reputation was alluded to by one or other of the people in attendance on him. A smile crossed his face then, and he turned his eyes on me with a trustful look, as if he were confident that I had seen some small redeeming touch in him, even so long ago as when I was a little child. As to all the rest, he was humble and contrite, and I never knew him complain. When the sessions came round, Mr. Jaggers caused an application to be made for the postponement of his trial until the following sessions. It was obviously made with the assurance that he could not live so long, and was refused. The trial came on at once, and when he was put to the bar, he was seated in a chair. No objection was made to my getting close to the dock, on the outside of it, and holding the hand that he stretched forth to me. The trial was very short and very clear. Such things as could be said for him were said. How he had taken to industrious habits, and had thriven lawfully and reputably. But nothing could unsay the fact that he had returned, and was there in presence of the judge and jury. It was impossible to try him for that, and do otherwise than find him guilty. At that time it was the custom, as I learned from my terrible experience of that sessions, to devote a concluding day to the passing of sentences, and to make a finishing effect with the sentence of death. But for the indelible picture that my remembrance now holds before me, I could scarcely believe, even as I write these words, that I saw two and thirty men and women put before the judge to receive that sentence together. Foremost among the two and thirty was he, seated that he might get breath enough to keep life in him. The whole scene starts out again, in the vivid colours of the moment, down to the drops of April rain on the windows of the court, glittering in the rays of April sun. Penned in the dock, as I again stood outside it, at the corner, with his hand in mine, were the two and thirty men and women, some defiant, some stricken with terror, some sobbing and weeping, some covering their faces, some staring gloomily about. There had been shrieks from among the women convicts, but they had been stilled. A hush had succeeded. The sheriffs, with their great chains and nosegays, other civic gugors and monsters, criers, ushers, a great gallery full of people, a large theatrical audience, looked on, as the two-and-thirty and the judge were solemnly confronted. Then the judge addressed them. Among the wretched creatures before him, whom he must single out for special address, was one who, almost from his infancy, had been an offender against the laws, who, after repeated imprisonments and punishments, had been at length sentenced to exile for a term of years, 
and who, under circumstances of great violence and daring, had made his escape, and been re-sentenced to exile for life. That miserable man would seem, for a time, to have become convinced of his errors, when far removed from the scenes of his old offences, and to have lived a peaceable and honest life. But in a fatal moment, yielding to those propensities and passions, the indulgence of which had so long rendered him a scourge to society, he had quitted his haven of rest and repentance, and had come back to the country where he was proscribed. Being here presently denounced, he had for a time succeeded in evading the officers of justice, but being at length seized, while in the act of flight, he had resisted them, and had, he best knew whether by express design or in the blindness of his hardihood, caused the death of his denouncer, to whom his whole career was known. The appointed punishment for his return to the land that had cast him out, being death, and his case being this aggravated case, he must prepare himself to die. The sun was striking in at the great windows of the court, through the glittering drops of rain upon the glass, and it made a broad shaft of light between the two-and-thirty and the judge, linking both together, and perhaps reminding some among the audience, how both were passing on, with absolute equality, to the greater judgment that knoweth all things, and cannot err. Rising for a moment, a distinct speck of face in this way of light, the prisoner said, "'My lord, I have received my sentence of death from the Almighty, but I bow to yours.' and sat down again. There was some hushing, and the judge went on with what he had to say to the rest. Then they were all formally doomed, and some of them were supported out, and some of them sauntered out with a haggard look of bravery, and a few nodded to the gallery, and two or three shook hands, and others went out chewing the fragments of herb they had taken from the sweet herbs lying about. He went last of all, because of having to be helped from his chair, and to go very slowly. And he held my hand while all the others were removed, and while the audience got up, putting their dresses right, as they might at church or elsewhere, and pointed down at this criminal or that, and most of all at him and me. I earnestly hoped and prayed that he might die before the recorder's report was made, but, in the dread of his lingering on, I began that night to write out a petition to the Home Secretary of State, setting forth my knowledge of him, and how it was that he had come back for my sake. I wrote it as fervently and pathetically as I could, and when I had finished it and sent it in, I wrote out other petitions to such men in authority as I hoped were the most merciful, and drew up one to the Crown itself. For several days and nights, after he was sentenced, I took no rest, except when I fell asleep in my chair but was wholly absorbed in these appeals. And after I had sent them in, I could not keep away from the places where they were, but felt as if they were more hopeful and less desperate when I was near them. In this unreasonable restlessness and pain of mind, I would roam the streets of an evening, wandering by those offices and houses where I had left the petitions. To the present hour, the weary western streets of London, on a cold, dusty spring night, with their ranges of stern shut-up mansions, and their long rows of lamps, are melancholy to me from this association. The daily visits I could make him were shortened now, and he was more strictly kept, 
seeing or fancying that I was suspected of an intention of carrying poison to him, I asked to be searched before I sat down at his bedside, and told the officer, who was always there, that I was willing to do anything that would assure him of the singleness of my designs. Nobody was hard with him, or with me. There was duty to be done, and it was done, but not harshly. The officer always gave me the assurance that he was worse, and some other sick prisoners in the room, and some other prisoners who attended on them as sick nurses, malefactors, but not incapable of kindness, God be thanked, always joined in the same report. As the days went on, I noticed more and more that he would lie placidly looking at the white ceiling, with an absence of light in his face, until some word of mine brightened it for an instant, and then it would subside again. Sometimes he was almost, or quite, unable to speak. Then he would answer me with slight pressures on my hand, and I grew to understand his meaning very well. The number of the days had risen to ten, when I saw a greater change in him than I had seen yet. His eyes were turned towards the door, and lighted up as I entered. "'Dear boy,' he said, as I sat down by his bed, "'I thought you was late, but I knowed you couldn't be that.' "'It is just the time,' said I. "'I waited for it at the gate.' "'You always waits at the gate, don't you, dear boy?' "'Yes, not to lose a moment of the time.' "'Thank ye, dear boy. Thank ye. God bless you. You've never deserted me, dear boy.' I pressed his hand in silence for I could not forget that I had once meant to desert him. "'And what's the best of all?' he said. "'You've been more comfortable along of me since I was under a dark cloud than when the sun shone. That's best of all.' He lay on his back, breathing with great difficulty do what he would, and love me though he did. The light left his face ever and again, and a film came over the placid look at the white ceiling. "'Are you in much pain to-day?' "'I don't complain of none, dear boy.' "'You never do complain.' He had spoken his last words. He smiled and I understood his touch to mean that he wished to lift my hand and lay it on his breast. I laid it there, and he smiled again, and put both his hands upon it. The allotted time ran out while we were thus. But, looking round, I found the governor of the prison standing near me, and he whispered, "'You needn't go yet.' I thanked him gratefully, and asked, might I speak to him, if he can hear me?" The governor stepped aside, and beckoned the officer away. The change, though it was made without noise, drew back the film from the placid look at the white ceiling, and he looked most affectionately at me. "'Dear Magwitch, I must tell you now, at last. You understand what I say?' A gentle pressure on my hand. "'You had a child once 
whom you loved and lost, a stronger pressure on my hand. She lived, and found powerful friends. She is living now. She is a lady, and very beautiful, and I love her. With a last faint effort, which would have been powerless, but for my yielding to it, and assisting it, he raised my hand to his lips. Then he gently let it sink upon his breast again, with his own hands lying on it. The placid look at the white ceiling came back, and passed away, and his head dropped quietly on his breast. Mindful then of what we had read together, I thought of the two men who went up into the temple to pray, and I knew there were no better words that I could say beside his bed than, O oh Lord, be merciful to him, a sinner. End of chapter 56《Chapter 57 of Great Expectations》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter 57 Now that I was left wholly to myself, I gave notice of my intention to quit the chambers in the temple as soon as my tenancy could legally determine, and in the meanwhile to underlet them. At once I put bills up in the windows, for I was in debt, and had scarcely any money, and began to be seriously alarmed by the state of my affairs. I ought rather to write, that I should have been alarmed, if I had had energy and concentration enough to help me to the clear perception of any truth, beyond the fact that I was falling very ill. The late stress upon me had enabled me to put off illness, but not to put it away. I knew that it was coming on me now, and I knew very little else, and was even careless as to that. For a day or two I lay on the sofa, or on the floor, anywhere, according as I happened to sink down, with a heavy head and aching limbs, and no purpose, and no power. Then there came one night, which appeared of great duration, and which teemed with anxiety and horror, and when in the morning I tried to sit up in my bed and think of it, I found I could not do so. Whether I really had been down in Garden Court, in the dead of the night, groping about for the boat that I supposed to be there, whether I had two or three times come to myself on the staircase with great terror, not knowing how I had got out of bed, whether I had found myself lighting the lamp, possessed by the idea that he was coming up the stairs, and that the lights were blown out whether I had been inexpressibly harassed by the distracted talking, laughing, and groaning of some one, and had half suspected those sounds to be of my own making, whether there had been a closed iron furnace in a dark corner of the room, and a voice had called out over and over again that Miss Havisham was consuming within it. These were things that I tried to settle with myself, and get into some order, as I lay that morning on my bed. But the vapour of a lime-kiln would come between me and them, disordering them all, and it was through the vapour at last that I saw two men looking at me. "'What do you want?' I asked, starting. "'I don't know you.' "'Well, sir,' returned one of them, bending down and touching me on the shoulder, 
"'This is a matter that you'll soon arrange, I dare say, but you're arrested.' "'What is the debt?' "'Hundred and twenty-three pound, fifteen-six. Jeweller's account, I think.' "'What is to be done?' "'You had better come to my house,' said the man. "'I keep a very nice house.' I made some attempt to get up and dress myself. When I next attended to them, they were standing a little off from the bed, looking at me. I still lay there. "'You see my state,' said I. "'I would come with you if I could, but, indeed, I am quite unable. If you take me from here, I think I shall die by the way.' Perhaps they replied, or argued the point, or tried to encourage me to believe that I was better than I thought. For as much as they hang in my memory, by only this one slender thread, I don't know what they did, except that they forbore to remove me. That I had a fever, and was avoided, that I suffered greatly, that I often lost my reason, that the time seemed interminable, that I confounded impossible existences with my own identity, that I was a brick in the house wall, and yet entreating to be released from the giddy place where the builders had set me, that I was a steel beam of a vast engine, clashing and whirling over a gulf, and yet that I implored in my own person to have the engine stopped, and my part in it hammered off, that I passed through these phases of disease, I know of my own remembrance, and did, in some sort, know at the time. That I sometimes struggled with real people, in the belief that they were murderers, and that I would all at once comprehend that they meant to do me good, and would then sink exhausted in their arms, and suffer them to lay me down, I also knew at the time. But, above all, I knew that there was a constant tendency in all these people, who, when I was very ill, would present all kinds of extraordinary transformations of the human face, and would be much dilated in size. Above all, I say, I knew that there was an extraordinary tendency in all these people, sooner or later, to settle down into the likeness of Joe. After I had turned the worst point of my illness, I began to notice that while all its other features changed, this one consistent feature did not change. Whoever came about me still settled down into Joe. I opened my eyes in the night, and I saw in the great chair at the bedside, Joe. I opened my eyes in the day, and sitting on the window-seat, smoking his pipe in the shaded open window, still I saw Joe. I asked for cooling drink, and the dear hand that gave it me was Joe's. I sank back on my pillow after drinking, and the face that looked so hopefully and tenderly upon me was the face of Joe. At last, one day, I took courage and said, "'Is it Joe?' And the dear old home voice answered, "'Which it air, old chap?' "'Oh, Joe!' You break my heart. Look angry at me, Joe. Strike me, Joe. Tell me of my ingratitude. Don't be so good to me. For Joe had actually laid his head down on the pillow at my side, and put his arm round my neck, in his joy that I knew him. Which, dear old Pip, old chap, said Joe, 
you and me was ever friends. And when you're well enough to go out for a ride, what larks? After which, Joe withdrew to the window, and stood with his back towards me, wiping his eyes. And as my extreme weakness prevented me from getting up and going to him, I lay there, penitently whispering, Oh, God bless him! Oh, God bless this gentle Christian man! Joe's eyes were red when I next found him beside me, but I was holding his hand, and we both felt happy. How long, dear Joe? Which you mean to say, Pip, how long have your illness lasted, dear old chap? Yes, Joe. It's the end of May, Pip. Tomorrow is the first of June. And have you been here all that time, dear Joe? Pretty nigh, old chap. For, as I says to Biddy, when the news of your being ill were brought by letter, which it were brought by the post, and being formerly single, he's now married, though underpaid for a deal of walking and shoe-leather, but wealth were not an object on his part, and marriage were the great wish of his art. It's so delightful to hear you, Joe. But I interrupt you in what you said to Biddy. Which it were, said Joe, that how you might be amongst strangers, and that how you and me, having been ever friends, a visit at such a moment, might not prove unacceptable. And Biddy, her word were, go to him without loss of time. That, said Joe, summing up with his judicial air, were the word of Biddy. Go to him, Biddy said, without loss of time. In short, I shouldn't greatly deceive you, Joe added, after a little grave reflection, if I represented you that the word of that young woman were, without a minute's loss of time. There Joe cut himself short, and informed me that I was to be talked to in great moderation, and that I was to take a little nourishment at stated frequent times, whether I felt inclined for it or not, and that I was to submit myself to all his orders. So I kissed his hand, and lay quiet, while he proceeded to indite a note to Biddy with my love in it. Evidently Biddy had taught Joe to write. As I lay in bed, looking at him, it made me, in my weak state, cry again with pleasure, to see the pride with which he set about his letter. My bedstead, divested of its curtains, had been removed, with me upon it, into the sitting-room, as the airiest and largest, and the carpet had been taken away, and the room kept always fresh and wholesome night and day. At my own writing-table, pushed into a corner and cumbered with little bottles, Joe now sat down to his great work, first choosing a pen from the pen-tray, as if it were a chest of large tools, and tucking up his sleeves, as if he were going to wield a crowbar or sledge-hammer. It was necessary for Joe to hold on heavily to the table with his left elbow, and to get his right leg well out behind him, before he could begin. And when he did begin, he made every downstroke so slowly that it might have been six feet long, while at every upstroke I could hear his pen spluttering extensively. He had a curious idea that the inkstand was on the side of him where it was not, and constantly dipped his pen into space, 
and seemed quite satisfied with the result. Occasionally, he was tripped up by some orthographical stumbling-block, but on the whole he got on very well indeed, and when he had signed his name, and had removed a finishing blot from the paper to the crown of his head with his two forefingers, he got up and hovered about the table, trying the effect of his performance from various points of view, as it lay there, with unbounded satisfaction. Not to make Joe uneasy by talking too much, even if I had been able to talk much, I deferred asking him about Miss Havisham until next day. He shook his head when I then asked him if she had recovered. "'Is she dead, Joe?' "'Why, you see, old chap,' said Joe, in a tone of remonstrance, and by way of getting at it by degrees, "'I wouldn't go so far as to say that.' "'For well, that's a deal to say. "'But she ain't.' "'Living, Joe?' "'That's nigher where it is,' said Joe. "'She ain't living.' "'Did she linger long, Joe?' "'Arter you was took ill, "'pretty much about what you might call, "'if you was to put to it, a week,' said Joe, "'still determined on my account "'to come at everything by degrees. "'Dear Joe,' "'Have you heard what becomes of her property?' "'Well, old chap,' said Joe, "'it do appear that she had settled the most of it, "'which I mean to say tidied up on Mrs. Stella. "'But she had wrote out a little cockle-shell in her own hand "'a day or two afore the accident, "'leaving a cool four thousand to Mr. Matthew Pocket. "'And why?' Do you suppose, above all things, Pip, she left that cool four thousand unto him? Because of Pip's account of him, the said Matthew. I'm told by Biddy that ere the writing, said Joe, repeating the legal turn, as if it did him infinite good. Account of him, the said Matthew, and a cool four thousand, Pip. I never discovered from whom Joe derived the conventional temperature of the four thousand pounds, but it appeared to make the sum of money more to him, and he had a manifest relish in insisting on its being cool. This account gave me great joy, as it perfected the only good thing I had done. I asked Joe whether he had heard if any of the other relations had any legacies. "'Miss Sarah,' said Joe, "'she have twenty-five pound per annum for to buy pills on account of being bilious. Miss Georgiana, she have twenty pound down. Mrs. Uh, what's the name of them wild beasts with umps, old chap? Camels, said I, wondering why he could possibly want to know. Joe nodded. Mrs. Camels, by which I presently understood he meant Camilla, she have five pound for to buy brushlights to put her in spirits when she wake up in the night. The accuracy of these recitals was sufficiently obvious to me to give me great confidence in Joe's information. "'And now,' said Joe, "'you ain't that strong yet, old chap, that you can take in more, nor one additional shovelful to-day. Old Orlick, he's been a-bustin' open a dwelling-house.' "'Whose?' said I. "'Not, I grant you, but what his manners is given to blusterous, 
said Joe, apologetically. Still, a Englishman's house is his castle, and castles must not be busted, except when done in wartime. And what's some here, the failings on his part, he were a corn and seedsman in his heart. Is it Pumblechook's house that has been broken into, then? That's it, Pip, said Joe. And they took his till, and they took his cash-box, and they drink his wine, and they partook of his wills, and they slapped his face, and they pulled his nose, and they tied him up to his bedpost, and they give him a dozen, and they stuffed his mouth full of flowering annuals to prevent his crying out. But he knowed Orlick, and Orlick's in the county jail. By these approaches we arrived at unrestricted conversation. I was slow to gain strength, but I did slowly and surely become less weak, and Joe stayed with me, and I fancied I was little Pip again. For the tenderness of Joe was so beautifully proportioned to my need that I was like a child in his hands. He would sit and talk to me in the old confidence, and with the old simplicity, and in the old unassertive protecting ways, so that I would half believe that all my life, since the days of the old kitchen, was one of the mental troubles of the fever that was gone. He did everything for me, except the household work, for which he had engaged a very decent woman, after paying off the laundress on his first arrival. "'Which I do assure you, Pip,' he would often say, in explanation of that liberty, "'I found her a-tap in the spare bed, like a cask of beer, and drawing off the feathers in a bucket for sale, which she would have tapped your next, and drawed it off with you a-lying on it, and was then a-carrying away the coals gradually, in the soup tureen and vegetable dishes, and the wine and spirits in your Wellington boots. We looked forward to the day when I should go out for a ride, as we had once looked forward to the day of my apprenticeship. And when the day came, and an open carriage was got into the lane, Joe wrapped me up, took me in his arms, carried me down to it, and put me in, as if I were still a small helpless creature to whom he had so abundantly given of the wealth of his great nature. And Joe got in beside me, and we drove away together into the country, where the rich summer growth was already on the trees, and on the grass, and sweet summer scents filled all the air. The day happened to be Sunday, and when I looked on the loveliness around me, and thought how it had grown and changed, and how the little wild flowers had been forming, and the voices of the birds had been strengthening by day and by night, under the sun and under the stars, while poor I lay burning and tossing on my bed, the mere remembrance of having burned and tossed there came like a check upon my peace. But when I heard the Sunday bells, and looked around a little more upon the outspread beauty, I felt that I was not nearly thankful enough, that I was too weak yet to be even that, and I laid my head on Joe's shoulder, as I had laid it long ago when he had taken me to the fair, or where not, and it was too much for my young senses. More composure came to me after a while, and we talked as we used to talk, lying on the grass at the old battery. There was no change whatever in Joe. Exactly what he had been in my eyes then, he was in my eyes still, just as simply faithful and as simply right. 
when we got back again, and he lifted me out and carried me, so easily, across the court and up the stairs, I thought of that eventful Christmas day, when he had carried me over the marshes. We had not yet made any allusion to my change of fortune, nor did I know how much of my late history he was acquainted with. I was so doubtful of myself now, and put so much trust in him, that I could not satisfy myself whether I ought to refer to it when he did not. "'Have you heard, Joe?' I asked him that evening, upon further consideration, as he smoked his pipe at the window, "'who my patron was?' "'I heard,' returned Joe, "'as it were not Miss Aversham, old chap.' "'Did you hear who it was, Joe?' "'Well, I heard, as it were a person, what sent the person, what give you the bank-notes at the jolly bargeman, Pip?' "'So it was.' "'Astonishing.' said Joe, in the placidest way. "'Did you hear that he was dead, Joe?' I presently asked, with increasing diffidence. "'Which? He must sent the bank-notes, Pip?' "'Yes.' "'I think,' said Joe, after meditating a long time, and looking rather evasively at the window-seat, "'as I did hear tell that how he were something or another, in a general way, in that direction.' "'Did you hear anything of his circumstances, Joe?' "'Not particular, Pip.' "'If you would like to hear, Joe,' I was beginning, when Joe got up and came to my sofa. "'Looky here, old chap,' said Joe, bending over me. "'Ever the best of friends, ain't us, Pip?' I was ashamed to answer him. "'Wery good, then,' said Joe, as if I had answered. "'That's all right. That's agreed upon.' "'Then why go into subjects, old chap, which, as betwixt two such, must be for ever unnecessary? "'There's subjects enough, as betwixt two such, without unnecessary ones. "'Lord, do think of your poor sister and her rampages, and don't you remember Tickler?' "'I do indeed, Joe.' "'Looky here, old chap,' said Joe. "'I done what I could.' to keep you and Tickler in sunders, but my power were not always fully equal to my inclinations, for when your poor sister had a mind to drop into you, it were not so much," said Joe, in his favourite argumentative way, that she dropped into me too. If I put myself in opposition to her, but that she dropped into you, or was heavier for it, I noticed that. It ain't a grab at a man's whisker not yet a shake or two of a man, to which your sister was quite welcome. That would put a man off from getting a little child out of punishment. But when that little child is dropped into, heavier, for that grab of whisker or shaking, then that man naturally up and says to himself, Where is the good as you are a-doing? I grant you, I see the arm, says the man, but I don't see the good. I call upon you, sir, therefore, to pint out the good. The man says, I observed as Joe waited for me to speak, the man says, Joe assented, is he right, that man? Dear Joe, he is always right. Well, old chap, said Joe, then abide by your words. If he's always right, which in general he's more likely wrong, he's right when he says this. 
supposing ever you kept any little matter to yourself, when you was a little child, you kept it mostly because you knowed as J. Gargery's power to part you and Tickler in sunders were not fully equal to his inclinations. Therefore, think no more of it as betwixt two such, and do not let us pass remarks upon unnecessary subjects. Biddy give herself a deal of trouble with me afore I left, for I am almost awful dull, as I should view it in this light, and, viewing it in this light, as I should so put it, both of which, said Joe, quite charmed with his logical arrangement, being done, now this to you a true friend, say, namely, you mustn't go a overdoing on it, but you must have your supper and your wine and water, and you must be put betwixt the sheets. The delicacy with which Joe dismissed this theme, and the sweet tact and kindness with which Biddy, who with her woman's wit had found me out so soon, had prepared him for it, made a deep impression on my mind. But whether Joe knew how poor I was, and how my great expectations had all dissolved, like our own marsh mists before the sun, I could not understand. Another thing in Joe that I could not understand when it first began to develop itself, but which I soon arrived at a sorrowful comprehension of, was this. As I became stronger and better, Joe became a little less easy with me. In my weakness and entire dependence on him, the dear fellow had fallen into the old tone, and called me by the old names, the dear old Pip, old chap, that now were music in my ears. I too had fallen into the old ways, only happy and thankful that he let me. But, imperceptibly, though I held by them fast, Joe's hold upon them began to slacken, and whereas I wondered at this at first, I soon began to understand that the cause of it was in me, and that the fault of it was all mine. Ah! Had I given Joe no reason to doubt my constancy, and to think that in prosperity I should grow cold to him and cast him off? Had I given Joe's innocent heart no cause to feel instinctively that as I got stronger his hold upon me would be weaker, and that he had better loosen it in time and let me go before I plucked myself away? It was on the third or fourth occasion of my going out walking in the temple gardens, leaning on Joe's arm, that I saw this change in him very plainly. We had been sitting in the bright warm sunlight, looking at the river, and I chanced to say as we got up, "'See, Joe, I can walk quite strongly. Now you shall see me walk by myself.' "'Which do not overdo it, Pip,' said Joe, "'but I shall be happy for it to see you able, sir.' The last word grated on me, but how could I remonstrate? I walked no further than the gate of the gardens, and then pretended to be weaker than I was, and asked Joe for his arm. Joe gave it me, but was thoughtful. I, for my part, was thoughtful too. For how best to check this growing change in Joe was a great perplexity to my remorseful thoughts. That I was ashamed to tell him exactly how I was placed, and what I had come down to, I do not seek to conceal. But I hope my reluctance was not quite an unworthy one. He would want to help me out of his little savings, I knew, and I knew that he ought not to help me, and that I must not suffer him to do it. It was a thoughtful evening with both of us. But before we went to bed, 
I had resolved that I would wait over to-morrow, to-morrow being Sunday, and would begin my new course with the new week. On Monday morning I would speak to Joe about this change. I would lay aside this last vestige of reserve. I would tell him what I had in my thoughts. That secondly, not yet arrived at, and why I had not decided to go out to Herbert, and then the change would be conquered for ever. As I cleared, Joe cleared, and it seemed as though he had sympathetically arrived at a resolution too. We had a quiet day on the Sunday, and we rode out into the country, and then walked in the fields. "'I feel thankful that I have been ill, Joe,' I said. "'Dear old Pip, old chap, you're almost come round, sir.' "'It has been a memorable time for me, Joe.' "'Likewise for myself, sir,' Joe returned. "'We have had a time together, Joe, that I can never forget. There were days once, I know, that I did for a while forget, but I never shall forget these.' "'Pip,' said Joe, appearing a little hurried and troubled, "'there has been larks, and, dear sir, what have been betwixt us have been.' At night, when I had gone to bed, Joe came into my room as he had done all through my recovery. He asked me if I felt sure that I was as well as in the morning. "'Yes, dear Joe, quite.' "'And are always a-getting stronger, old chap?' "'Yes, dear Joe, steadily.' Joe patted the coverlet on my shoulder, with his great good hand, and said, in what I thought a husky voice, "'Good night.' When I got up in the morning, refreshed and stronger yet, I was full of my resolution to tell Joe all without delay. I would tell him before breakfast. I would dress at once, and go to his room, and surprise him, for it was the first day I had been up early. I went to his room, and he was not there. Not only was he not there, but his box was gone. I hurried then to the breakfast-table, and on it found a letter. These were its brief contents. Not wishful to intrude. I have departured, for you are well again, dear Pip, and will do better without J.O. P.S. Ever the best of friends. Enclosed in the letter was a receipt for the debt and costs on which I had been arrested. Down to that moment I had vainly supposed that my creditor had withdrawn or suspended proceedings until I should be quite recovered. I never dreamed of Joe's having paid the money, but Joe had paid it, and the receipt was in his name. What remained for me now but to follow him to the dear old forge, and there to have out my disclosure to him, and my penitent remonstrance with him, and there to relieve my mind and heart of that reserved secondly, which had begun as a vague something lingering in my thoughts, and had formed into a settled purpose? The purpose was, that I would go to Biddy, that I would show her how humbled and repentant I came back, that I would tell her how I had lost all I once hoped for, that I would remind her of our old confidences in my first unhappy time. Then I would say to her, Biddy, I think you once liked me very well, when my errant heart, even while it strayed away from you, was quieter and better with you than it ever has been since. If you can like me only half as well once more, if you can take me with all my faults and disappointments on my head, 
if you can receive me like a forgiven child, and indeed I am a sorry Biddy, and have as much need of a hushing voice and a soothing hand. I hope I am a little worthier of you than I was. Not much, but a little. And, Biddy, it shall rest with you to say, whether I shall work at the forge with Joe, or whether I shall try for any different occupation down in this country, or whether we shall go away to a distant place where an opportunity awaits me, which I set aside when it was offered, until I knew your answer. And now, dear Biddy, if you can tell me that you will go through the world with me, you will surely make it a better world for me, and me a better man for it, and I will try hard to make it a better world for you. Such was my purpose. After three days more of recovery, I went down to the old place to put it in execution, and how I sped in it is all I have left to tell. End of chapter 57「Fifty Eight of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter Fifty Eight. The tidings of my high fortunes, having had a heavy fall, had got down to my native place and its neighbourhood before I got there. I found a blue boar in possession of the intelligence and I found that it made a great change in the boar's demeanour. Whereas the boar had cultivated my good opinion with warm assiduity when I was coming into property, the boar was exceedingly cool on the subject now that I was going out of property. It was evening when I arrived, much fatigued by the journey I had so often made so easily. The boar could not put me into my usual bedroom, which was engaged, probably by someone who had expectations, and could only assign me a very indifferent chamber among the pigeons and post-chaises up the yard. But I had as sound a sleep in that lodging, as in the most superior accommodation the boar could have given me, and the quality of my dreams was about the same as in the best bedroom. Early in the morning, while my breakfast was getting ready, I strolled round by Sartis' house. There were printed bills on the gate, and on bits of carpet hanging out of the windows, announcing a sale by auction of the household furniture and effects next week. The house itself was to be sold as old building materials, and pulled down. Lot one was marked in whitewash, knock-knee letters on the brew-house. Lot two, on that part of the main building which had been so long shut up. Other lots were marked off on other parts of the structure, and the ivy had been torn down to make room for the inscriptions, and much of it trailed low in the dust and was withered already. Stepping in for a moment at the open gate, and looking around me, with the uncomfortable air of a stranger who had no business there, I saw the auctioneer's clerk walking on the casks, and telling them off for the information of a catalogue compiler, pen in hand, who made a temporary desk of the wheeled chair I had so often pushed along to the tune of old Clem. When I got back to my breakfast in the boar's coffee-room, I found Mr. Pumblechook conversing with the landlord. Mr. Pumblechook, not improved in appearance by his late nocturnal adventure, was waiting for me, and addressed me in the following terms. "'Young man, I am sorry to see you brawl, or 
but what else could be expected? What else could be expected? As he extended his hand with a magnificently forgiving air, and as I was broken by illness and unfit to quarrel, I took it. "'William,' said Mr. Pumblechook to the waiter, "'put a muffin on table, and has it come to this? Has it come to this?' I frowningly sat down to my breakfast. Mr. Pumblechook stood over me, and poured out my tea. Before I could touch the teapot, with the air of a benefactor who was resolved to be true to the last. "'William,' said Mr. Pumblechook, mournfully, "'put the salt on. In happier times,' addressing me, "'I think you took sugar. And did you take milk?' "'You did. Sugar and milk. William, bring a watercress.' "'Thank you.' said I shortly, but I don't eat watercresses. "'You don't eat them,' returned Mr. Pumblechook, sighing and nodding his head several times, as if he might have expected that, and as if abstinence from watercresses were consistent with my downfall. "'True! The simple fruits of the earth! No, you needn't bring any, William.' I went on with my breakfast and Mr. Pumblechook continued to stand over me, staring fishily and breathing noisily, as he always did. "'Little more than skin and bone,' mused Mr. Pumblechook aloud, "'and yet, when he went from here, I may say with my blessing, and I spread afore him my humble store, like the bee, he was as plump as a peach.' This reminded me of the wonderful difference between the servile manner in which he had offered his hand in my new prosperity, saying, May I, and the ostentatious clemency with which he had just now exhibited the same fat five fingers. Ah, he went on, handing me the bread and butter, and are you a-going to Joseph? In heaven's name, said I, firing in spite of myself, "'What does it matter to you where I am going? Leave that teapot alone!' It was the worst course I could have taken, because it gave Pumblechook the opportunity he wanted. "'Yes, young man,' said he, releasing the handle of the article in question, retiring a step or two from my table, and speaking for the behoof of the landlord and waiter at the door. "'I will leave that teapot alone. You are right, young man.' For once you are right. I forget myself when I take such an interest in your breakfast as to wish your frame exhausted by the debilitating effects of prodigality, to be stimulated by the wholesome nourishment of your forefathers. And yet, said Pumblechook, turning to the landlord and waiter, and pointing me out at arm's length, this is him as i ever sported with in his days of happy infancy tell me not it cannot be i tell you this is him a low murmur from the two replied the waiter appeared to be particularly affected this is him said pumblechook as i have rode in my she-cart 
This is him, as I have seen brought up by hand. This is him unto the sister of which I was uncle by marriage, as her name was Georgiana Maria, from her own mother. Let him deny it if he can. The waiter seemed convinced that I could not deny it, and that it gave the case a black look. "'Young man,' said Pumblechook, screwing his head at me in the old fashion, "'you were a-going to Joseph. What does it matter to me, you ask me, where you were a-going? I say to you, sir, you were a-going to Joseph.' The waiter coughed, as if he modestly invited me to get over that. "'Now,' said Pumblechook, and all this with a most exasperating air, of saying in the course of virtue what was perfectly convincing and conclusive, "'I will tell you what to say to Joseph. Here is squires of the ball present, known and respected in this town, and here is William, which his father's name was Potkins, if I do not deceive myself.' "'You do not, sir,' said William. "'In their presence,' pursued Pumblechook, "'I will tell you, young man, what to say to Joseph. Says you, Joseph, I have this day seen my earliest benefactor and the founder of my fortunes. I will name no names, Joseph.' but so they are pleased to call him uptown, and I have seen that man. "'I swear I don't see him here,' said I. "'Say that likewise,' retorted Pumblechook. "'Say you said that, and even Joseph will probably betray surprise.' "'There you're quite mistaken,' said I. "'I know better.' "'Says you,' Pumblechook went on, "'Joseph!' I have seen that man, and that man bears you no malice, and bears me no malice. He knows your character, Joseph, and is well acquainted with your pig-headedness and ignorance. And he knows my character, Joseph, and he knows my want of gratitude. Yes, Joseph, says you. Here Pumblechook shook his head and hand at me. He knows my total deficiency of common human gratitude. He knows it, Joseph, as none can. You do not know it, Joseph, having no call to know it, but that man do. Windy donkey as he was, it really amazed me that he could have the face to talk thus to mine. Says you, Joseph, he gave me a little message, which I will now repeat. It was that in my being brought low, he saw the finger of Providence. He knowed that finger when he saw it, Joseph, <laughs> and he saw it plain. It painted out this writing, Joseph. Reward of ingratitude to his earliest benefactor and founder of Fortins. But that man said he did not repent of what he had done, Joseph. Not at all. It was right to do it. It was kind to do it. It was benevolent to do it, and he would do it again. "'It's pity,' said I scornfully, as I finished my interrupted breakfast, "'that the man did not say what he had done, and would do again.' "'Squires of the boar,' 
Bumblechook was now addressing the landlord. "'And, William, I have no objections to your mentioning either up-town or down-town, if such should be your wishes, that it was right to do it, kind to do it, benevolent to do it, and that I would do it again.' With those words, the impostor shook them both by the hand, with an air, and left the house, leaving me much more astonished than delighted by the virtues of that same indefinite it. I was not long after him and leaving the house, too, and when I went down the high street I saw him holding forth, no doubt, to the same effect, at his shop-door to a select group who honoured me with very unfavourable glances as I passed on the opposite side of the way. But it was only the pleasanter to turn to Biddy and to Joe, whose great forbearance shone more brightly than before, if that could be, contrasted with this brazen pretender. I went towards them slowly, for my limbs were weak, but with the sense of increasing relief as I drew nearer to them, and a sense of leaving arrogance and untruthfulness further and further behind. The June weather was delicious. The sky was blue, the larks were soaring high over the green corn. I thought all that countryside more beautiful and peaceful, by far, than I had ever known it to be yet. Many pleasant pictures of the life I would lead there, and of the change for the better that would come over my character, when I had a guiding spirit at my side, whose simple faith and clear home-wisdom I had proved beguiled my way. They awakened a tender emotion in me for my heart was softened by my return, and such a change had come to pass that I felt like one who was toiling home, barefoot from distant travel, and whose wanderings had lasted many years. The schoolhouse where Biddy was mistress I had never seen, but the little roundabout lane by which I entered the village for quietness' sake took me past it. I was disappointed to find that the day was a holiday, no children were there, and Biddy's house was closed. Some hopeful notion of seeing her busily engaged in her daily duties, before she saw me, had been in my mind, and was defeated. But the forge was a very short distance off, and I went towards it under the sweet green limes, listening for the clink of Joe's hammer. Long after I ought to have heard it, and long after I had fancied I heard it, and found it but a fancy, all was still. The limes were there, and the white thorns were there and the chestnut-trees were there, and their leaves rustled harmoniously when I stopped to listen, but the clink of Joe's hammer was not in the midsummer wind. Almost fearing, without knowing why, to come in view of the forge, I saw it at last, and saw that it was closed. No gleam of fire, no glittering shower of sparks, no roar of bellows, all shut up and still. But the house was not deserted and the best parlour seemed to be in use, for there were white curtains fluttering in its window, and the window was open and gay with flowers. I went softly towards it, meaning to peep over the flowers, when Joe and Biddy stood before me arm in arm. At first Biddy gave a cry, as if she thought it was my apparition, but in another moment she was in my embrace. I wept to see her, and she wept to see me. I, because she looked so fresh and pleasant, she, because I looked so worn and white. "'But, dear Biddy, how smart you are!' "'Yes, dear Pip. 
and show how smart you are. Yes, dear old Pip, old chap. I looked at both of them, from one to the other, and then— It's my wedding day, cried Biddy, in a burst of happiness, and I am married to Joe. They had taken me into the kitchen, and I had laid my head down on the old deal-table. Biddy held one of my hands to her lips, and Joe's restoring touch was on my shoulder. "'Which ye warn't strong enough, my dear, for it to be surprised,' said Joe. And Biddy said, "'I ought to have thought of it, dear Joe, but I was too happy.' They were both so overjoyed to see me, so proud to see me, so touched by my coming to them, so delighted that I should have come by accident to make their day complete. My first thought was one of great thankfulness that I had never breathed this last baffled hope to Joe. How often, while he was with me in my illness, had it risen to my lips! How irrevocable would have been his knowledge of it, if he had remained with me but another hour! "'Dear Biddy,' said I, "'you have the best husband in the whole world, and if you could have seen him by my bed, you would have—but no, you couldn't love him better than you do.' "'No, I couldn't indeed,' said Biddy. "'And dear Joe,' You have the best wife in the whole world, and she will make you as happy as even you deserve to be, you dear, good, noble Joe." Joe looked at me with a quivering lip, and fairly put his sleeve before his eyes. "'And Joe, and Biddy both, as you have been to church to-day, and are in charity and love with all mankind, receive my humble thanks for all you have done for me, and all I have so ill repaid. And when I say that I am going away within the hour, for I am soon going abroad, and that I shall never rest until I have worked for the money with which you have kept me out of prison, and have sent it to you. Don't think, dear Joe and Biddy, that if I could repay it a thousand times over, I suppose I could cancel a farthing of the debt I owe you, or that I would do so if I could." They were both melted by these words, and both entreated me to say no more. But I must say more. Dear Joe, I hope you'll have children to love, and that some little fellow will sit in this chimney-corner of a winter night, who may remind you of another little fellow gone out of it for ever. Don't tell him, Joe, that I was thankless. Don't tell him, Biddy, that I was ungenerous and unjust. Only tell him that I honoured you both, because you were both so good and true, and that, as your child, I said it would be natural to him to grow up a much better man than I did." "'I ain't a-goin,' said Joe, from behind his sleeve, "'to tell him nothink o' that nature, Pip, nor Biddy ain't, nor yet no one ain't. And now, though I know you have already done it in your own kind hearts, pray tell me both that you forgive me. Pray let me hear you say the words, that I may carry the sound of them away with me, and then I shall be able to believe that you can trust me, and think better of me, in the time to come." "'Oh, dear old Pip, old chap,' said Joe, "'God knows as I forgive you, if I have anything to forgive.' "'Amen! And God knows I do,' echoed Biddy. "'Now, let me go up and look at my old little room, and rest there a few minutes by myself, and then when I have eaten and drunk with you. Go with me as far as the finger-post, 
dear Joe and Biddy, before we say good-bye. I sold all I had, and put aside as much as I could, for a composition with my creditors, who gave me ample time to pay them in full, and I went out and joined Herbert. Within a month I had quitted England, and within two months I was clerk to Clarica and Co., and within four months I assumed my first undivided responsibility. For the beam across the parlour ceiling at Mill Pond Bank had then ceased to tremble under old Bill Barley's growls, and was at peace, and Herbert had gone away to marry Clara, and I was left in sole charge of the eastern branch until he brought her back. Many a year went round before I was partner in the house, but I lived happily with Herbert and his wife, and lived frugally, and paid my debts, and maintained a constant correspondence with Biddy and Joe. It was not until I became third in the firm that Clarica betrayed me to Herbert, but he then declared that the secret of Herbert's partnership had been long enough upon his conscience, and he must tell it. So he told it and Herbert was as much moved as amazed, and the dear fellow and I were not the worse friends for the long concealment. I must not leave it to be supposed that we were ever a great house, or that we made mints of money. We were not in a grand way of business, but we had a good name, and worked for our profits, and did very well. We owed so much to Herbert's ever-cheerful industry and readiness, that I often wondered how I had conceived that old idea of his inaptitude, until I was one day enlightened by the reflection that perhaps the inaptitude had never been in him at all, but had been in me. End of chapter 58「Chapter 59 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 59 For eleven years I had not seen Joe nor Biddy with my bodily eyes, though they had both been often before my fancy in the East, when, upon an evening in December, an hour or two after dark, I laid my hand softly on the latch of the old kitchen door. I touched it so softly that I was not heard, and looked in unseen. There, smoking his pipe in the old place by the kitchen firelight, as hale and as strong as ever, though a little grey, sat Joe, and there, fenced into the corner with Joe's leg, and sitting on my own little stool looking at the fire, was I again. "'We give him the name of Pip, for your sake, dear old chap,' said Joe delighted when I took another stool by the child's side, but I did not rumple his hair. "'And we hoped he might grow a little bit like you, and we think he do.' I thought so, too, and I took him out for a walk next morning, and we talked immensely, understanding one another to perfection, and I took him down to the churchyard, and set him on a certain tombstone there, and he showed me from that elevation which stone was sacred to the memory of Philip Pirrup, late of this parish, and also Georgiana, wife of the above. "'Biddy,' said I, when I talked with her after dinner, as her little girl lay sleeping in her lap, "'you must give Pip to me one of these days, or lend him, at all events. 
"'No, no,' said Biddy, gently. "'You must marry.' "'So Herbert and Clara say. But I don't think I shall, Biddy. I have so settled down in their home that it's not at all likely. I am already quite an old bachelor.' Biddy looked down at her child, and put its little hand to her lips, and then put the good matronly hand with which she had touched it into mine. There was something in the action, and in the light pressure of Biddy's wedding-ring, that had a very pretty eloquence in it. "'Dear Pip,' said Biddy, "'you're sure you don't fret for her?' "'Oh, no, I think not, Biddy.' "'Tell me, as an old, old friend, have you quite forgotten her?' "'My dear Biddy, I have forgotten nothing in my life that ever had a foremost place there.' and little that ever had any place there. But that poor dream, as I once used to call it, has all gone by, Biddy, all gone by. Nevertheless, I knew while I said those words, that I secretly intended to revisit the site of the old house that evening, alone, for her sake. Yes, even so, for Estella's sake. I had heard of her as leading a most unhappy life, and as being separated from her husband, who had used her with great cruelty, and who had become quite renowned as a compound of pride, avarice, brutality, and meanness. I had heard of the death of her husband, from an accident consequent on his ill-treatment of a horse. This release had befallen her some two years before. For anything I knew, she was married again. The early dinner-hour at Joe's left me abundance of time, without hurrying my talk with Biddy, to walk over to the old spot before dark. But, what with loitering on the way, to look at old objects, and to think of old times, the day had quite declined when I came to the place. There was no house now, no brewery, no building whatever left, but the wall of the old garden. The cleared space had been enclosed with a rough fence, and looking over it, I saw that some of the old ivy had struck root anew and was growing green on low, quiet mounds of ruin. A gate and the fence standing ajar, I pushed it open and went in. A cold, silvery mist had veiled the afternoon, and the moon was not yet up to scatter it. But the stars were shining beyond the mist, and the moon was coming, and the evening was not dark. I could trace out where every part of the old house had been, and where the brewery had been and where the gates, and where the casks. I had done so, and was looking along the desolate garden walk, when I beheld a solitary figure in it. The figure showed itself aware of me, as I advanced. It had been moving towards me, but it stood still. As I drew nearer, I saw it to be the figure of a woman. As I drew nearer yet, it was about to turn away, when it stopped, and let me come up with it. Then it faltered, as if much surprised and uttered my name, and I cried out, "'Estella? I am greatly changed. I wonder you know me.' The freshness of her beauty was indeed gone, but its indescribable majesty and its indescribable charm remained. Those attractions in it I had seen before. What I had never seen before was the saddened, softened light of the once proud eyes. What I had never felt before was the friendly touch of the once insensible hand. We sat down on a bench that was near, and I said, "'After so many years, 
"'It is strange that we should thus meet again, Estella, here, where our first meeting was. Do you often come back?' "'I have never been here since.' "'Nor I.' The moon began to rise, and I thought of the placid look at the white ceiling, which had passed away. The moon began to rise, and I thought of the pressure on my hand, when I had spoken the last words he had heard on earth. Estella was the next to break the silence that ensued between us. "'I have very often hoped, and intended to come back, but have been prevented by many circumstances. Poor, poor old place!' The silvery mist was touched with the first rays of the moonlight, and the same rays touched the tears that dropped from her eyes. Not knowing that I saw them, and setting herself to get the better of them, she said quietly, "'Were you wondering, as you walked along, how it came to be left in this condition?' "'Yes, Estella.' "'The ground belongs to me. It is the only possession I have not relinquished. Everything else has gone from me, little by little, but I have kept this. It was the subject of the only determined resistance I made in all the wretched years. Is it to be built on? At last it is. I came here to take leave of it before its change. And you? she said, in a voice of touching interest to a wanderer. You live abroad still? Still. And do well, I am sure. I work pretty hard for a sufficient living, and therefore, yes, I do well. I have often thought of you, said Estella. Have you? Of late, very often. There was a long, hard time when I kept far from me the remembrance of what I had thrown away when I was quite ignorant of its worth. But since my duty has not been incompatible with the admission of that remembrance, I have given it a place in my heart. You have always held your place in my heart, I answered, and we were silent again until she spoke. I little thought, said Estella, that I should take leave of you in taking leave of this spot. I am very glad to do so. Glad to part again, Estella? To me, parting is a painful thing. To me, the remembrance of our last parting has been ever mournful and painful. "'But you said to me,' returned Estella, very earnestly, "'God bless you! God forgive you! And if you could say that to me then, you will not hesitate to say that to me now, now when suffering has been stronger than all other teaching, and has taught me to understand what your heart used to be. I have been bent and broken, but, I hope—' into a better shape. Be as considerate and good to me as you were, and tell me we are friends." "'We are friends,' said I, rising and bending over her, as she rose from the bench. "'And will continue friends apart?' said Estella. I took her hand in mine, and we went out of the ruined place, and, as the morning mists had risen long ago, when I first left the forge, so the evening mists were rising now, and in all the broad expanse of tranquil light they showed to me, I saw no shadow of another parting from her. End of chapter 59 End of Great Expectations 
by Charles Dickens.